0: Look, we get it. You want to be able to present the best version of you to the world. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But you have to be careful. Like, really careful. Certainly more careful than your average medieval or renaissance man or woman. Because what they were doing was flat-out nuts. Not that they knew it at the time. All they knew was that the very height of fashion was to look as pale and white as possible. Because that meant you weren't the sort of person who had to work out in the sun. Which you could tell because those sorts of people were dark and tanned. Which you weren't. Clearly you spent all of your days indoors and covered up doing not much of anything. And that meant you had money and influence and power. Which were all very attractive qualities. And still are. So, most of the cosmetics of the day were focused on providing as much whiteness as possible. And before people get all up in arms and start marching on the GM Word of the Week Tower, don't worry, they didn't test cosmetics on animals back then. Heck, they didn't test them on anything. Queen Elizabeth I had a lot going for her. She engaged in healthy and vigorous exercise. She ate very moderately, and of course... Being the Virgin Queen, she avoided the troubles of pregnancy and childbirth by never getting pregnant and having children, a condition known to be very hazardous to the mother's health before, during, and after. As a result, she was healthy enough to survive, though only just, a severe case of smallpox when she was 29. Unfortunately, this was the beginning of her real problems. See, the smallpox left her face badly scarred, And in a time when unblemished complexions were about more than just beauty, she was in real trouble. See, the general belief was that any sort of scar, mark, or disfigurement was a sign of God's judgment. Those without sin would naturally be graced with a perfect countenance of, if not sublime beauty, at least pleasing aspect. Anything less was clearly a manifestation of God's displeasure, Maybe you were a liar or a thief, maybe you secretly harbored deviant fantasies, or perhaps you were just flat-out deranged. Much like being a Sith Lord, your outside would reflect your inside. So a pockmarked queen was a no-go, something had to be done. Fortunately, in Italy, decades earlier, someone had discovered the perfect thing for concealing blemishes, and particularly pockmarks. Venetian ceruse, also called Spirits of Saturn. It was the best available, most expensive, and definitely most exclusive skin whitener and concealer of the day. In the Book of the Courtier, Count Baldassare Castiglione described the women who wore Spirits of Saturn as, "...wearing a mask who dare not laugh for fear of causing it to crack." So this was definitely primo stuff. After all, it was either Venetian ceruse or a mixture of turpentine beeswax and human fat to fill in the pits. So every morning, Elizabeth would awaken and have applied to her face, neck, and chest an egg white wash, which was then followed up with a healthy layer of ceruse, Or rather, a layer of ceruse meant to make her look healthy. And boy did it do the trick. After all was said and done, her skin was silvery white and refracted stray beams of light in interesting ways. Her skin positively glowed. Over the top of this layer, she would then add a vermilion blush on her cheeks and lips. The look was so startling and yet so striking that soon, all the ladies at court and beyond were emulating the Queen's cosmetic regimen. And all this was well and good, because remember, at the time nobody knew nobody even suspected you see all they knew was that this combination of things made white and this combination of other things made red they weren't concerned about what they were combining only that the final product was the right color and did the thing they wanted it to queen elizabeth I and all the women at her court and all the women at all the other courts of europe just didn't know that making Venetian ceruse with vinegar, water, and white lead was a bad idea. Nor did they know that vermilion was made with cinnabar, which contains mercury, which was also a bad idea. They had no clue they were slowly poisoning themselves with their cosmetics, all in the name of trying not to look like they were sick and unhealthy. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. It was noted that Queen Elizabeth I, over the course of her life, and true, she did live to be 69, probably thanks to all the exercise and good diet brought about by trying very hard not to look like her unpleasantly fat father, Henry VIII, over the course of her life, she became increasingly paranoid and was subject to violent mood swings. Where she had been cunning and energetic... In her last year, she was indecisive and fretful. And late in her life, at the loss of her admirer Robert Devereux, whom she had been forced to execute for treason, she entered a depression she never overcame. Which is exactly what you'd expect from years of lead and mercury poisoning. Lead absorbs through the skin and causes hair loss, muscle paralysis, mood disorders, and declining mental acuity. And just for good measure, it corrodes the skin as well. Meaning that the pockmarks Elizabeth did have and was trying to cover up got worse and her skin grew blotchier. Which meant she had to use more and more Ceruse to cover it up. And because that wasn't bad enough, Ceruse also dried out the skin, causing wrinkles. And mercury? You could expect kidney and liver problems, fatigue, irritability, tremors, depression, paranoia, mood swings, excess salivation black teeth, and if you had kids, very probably, birth defects. And we won't even go into all the things that would happen if you powdered over the whole mess with the other popular whitening cosmetic of the day, face powder, which was made from arsenic. Oh, and covered up by all this makeup and the clothes of the time, and mostly staying inside the royal palaces and rarely venturing outside for any length of time at all vitamin D deficiency due to lack of exposure to sunlight, which meant soft bones and rickets. But hey, at least you were very, very white. In her later years, Elizabeth I lost her appetite, threw numerous temper tantrums at the slightest provocation, and threw her brushes at her ladies-in-waiting. She was paranoid that the Jesuits were out to get her, and by the end of her life spent much of her time sitting in the dark of her room crying. Cosmetics go back a long, long time and... No, wait. First, let's clear up what we mean by cosmetics. Oh, we know. It's one of those words that seems so obvious you couldn't possibly be confused about what it means. Which is just the sort of word we like around here because that almost always means you are confused about what it means. Cosmetics comes from the Greek kosmetikos meaning skilled in adornment, which came from cosmean to arrange or adorn, which has at its root cosmos, meaning order. So, in an extremely technical sense, cosmetics, skilled in creating order by arranging adornments. We have given order to the chaos of your face by adding makeup. Nice, eh? In its present form, the word cosmetics first cropped up around 1638, and generally means something used or related to making something beautiful, particularly the complexion. Now, the reason we had to stop down and give you that working definition, which is more or less courtesy of Merriam-Webster, was because a lot of people have written down the words cosmetics were first used in Egypt, and then called that the starting point of all things makeup. And well, we have to disagree. Sure, the Egyptians were in nice and early with their coal, K-O-H-L, which they used to darken around their eyes. It was made from something called Stibnite, which is really just a sulfide of antimony and is relatively harmless. And that's great and all, and good on the ancient Egyptians for working that out, but... But look... One of the definitions for cosmetics pretty clearly states that cosmetic is something done for the sake of appearance, right? And we can't help but think that way before the Egyptians, way back when you could fling a bone into the air and have it turn into a space station, there had to be one of those early primitives who looked at a freshly brained tapir, looked at the oncoming unfriendly tribe, and then thought to themselves, I wonder how badly they'd freak out if I smeared myself with the blood of this tapir and then went ahead and tried it. Or what about mimicking any of the animals that cover themselves in mud on hot days to keep the heat and flies off? And you can't tell us that no early human type looked at red clay soil and ever thought, I bet Becky would really go for me instead of Thog if I drew a couple of lines of that red clay on my chest just to emphasize my amazing pecs. And then, of course... Any one of those gambits that turned out to be successful would be repeated by others in the same group and then passed on generation to generation. Son, this is how we chased off the dumb Uggug, stayed cool and fly free, won all the Beckys in my day, and if it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you. You just know that sort of thing happened. But do they count as cosmetics? Well, not if you go looking on the internet. It's all about the Egyptians and coal, so perhaps what people mean when they say cosmetics isn't just any old product you put on to make an impression, but rather a preparation of ingredients made specifically for enhancing, modifying, or changing one's appearance. In which case, the Egyptians still aren't first. Nor is coal. No, the honor probably goes to something called red ochre, which was first used by... Well, some people who probably didn't have a name we know, but who were probably definitely among the first Homo sapiens to show up in Africa. Probably the red ochre, which is indeed a clay earth pigment with a bit of ferric oxide mixed in to give it a red color, was spread on the body in various rituals and ceremonies. Sometime, long after that, the Egyptians came along with their coal for the eyes as well as wrinkle treatments, ointments for scars and burns, and a bit of frankincense to clear up the old halitosis, all of which they also used on their mummies because, hey, you gotta look good in the afterlife, too. There was more to Egyptian cosmetics than just coal. And it was more than the Egyptians who had access to coal. It was in use across the Persian Empire, and was then picked up across the Middle East as the Persians were converted to Islam. Later, in a 24-volume 10th-century medical encyclopedia, the 19th volume was dedicated entirely to cosmetics and their uses. When this medical encyclopedia, Al-Tazrif, was translated into Latin, so too was the cosmetic volume, and so the West learned all about what the author called medicine of beauty. Meanwhile, in China, about 3000 BCE, the Chinese were staining their nails with mixtures of gum arabic, gelatin, beeswax, and egg white, and then color-coding them in accordance with their social class. And yet another Chinese princess found herself sitting under yet another tree in yet another garden when a plum blossom fell onto her forehead and sparked the whole fashion for decorating the foreheads of ladies at court with similar designs. But back to Rome. At first, cosmetics were just for rituals, but it soon became popular with Roman women, particularly the wealthy, but also prostitutes. There were even designer brands of cosmetics brought in through trade with foreign parts, and cheaper knockoff brands sold to those who couldn't afford the name brands. Because it was so time-consuming to put on as much makeup as was in use on your typical Roman woman, there were slaves specially trained to assist with a job. And you better believe a slave good at making her lady look good was a highly valued prize. Because the makeup was poorly formulated, depending on the weather, time of day, and other factors, it was often necessary for multiple applications to be made throughout the day. Someone who knew their stuff and could do the work quickly was invaluable. And the thing is, the Romans did know what the Elizabethans didn't know. According to Dress in the Roman Woman by Kelly Olson, The ancients were aware that at least two substances used as cosmetics were also poisonous, red and white lead, and mercury sublimate. Vitruvius noted that white lead was harmful to the human body, and that workers in lead had complexions affected by pallor. For when in casting pipes the lead receives the current of air, the fumes from it occupy the members of the body, and burning them robs the limbs of the virtues of the blood. Pliny the Elder states that white lead was lethal if ingested. The substance was thus especially dangerous in cosmetics, as it could be easily swallowed. Although the ancients believed it improved the complexion, to judge from the comparative evidence, skin treated with cerusa soon lost its youthful tone. Cosmetics in antiquity therefore both contributed to and skillfully concealed the devastation of the complexion. And there's our old friend Cerus again. Somehow, between the ancient Romans and the Elizabethans, the recipe for ceruse was retained, but the warnings were lost. Fortunately, as the 1600s came to a close and medicine and science began to make advances through the 17 and 1800s, physicians began to better understand what was causing the human body to fail in such extraordinary ways. At first, a sudden fatal illness was often put down to deliberate acts of poisoning, especially where kings, queens, and other important figures were concerned. Which, in a way, was correct. The difference being that people were willingly doing it to themselves rather than through the action of an outside agent. But as understanding grew, the signs of a particular kind of poison became more and more obvious, and with them, a greater insight into where these poisons were coming from. It took a while, But eventually fashion and science both agreed that there was little to be gained by killing your customers and mercury, lead, and arsenic fell out of use in cosmetics. Okay, maybe not. See, what really did the trick was changing social mores. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, wearing makeup became morally objectionable and hardly anyone did. It was really only used by cabaret dancers, prostitutes, and those appearing in the new black and white movies. Gradually, though, the fashion among the rich was again for pale white skin, for all the same reasons, and so something called face enameling became the trend, where women actually painted their faces to make them whiter. And you'd never believe it, but our old friend arsenic was still in use, because it still produced a white color when mixed with other ingredients. The only thing that really kept it from becoming a general disaster was that it was incredibly expensive to get makeup. It had become so unpopular over the intervening years that regular stores just didn't carry it, and only specialty theatrical supply stores made it available, charging a premium for even basic cosmetics. Believe it or not, though, it was ballet that gradually made cosmetics more acceptable. In the early 1900s, about all the average woman could do for makeup was a little bit of white paper powder on the nose, Anything more than that was really the province of women of negotiable affection. And then along came ballet and theater stars like the Russian Ballet and Sarah Bernhardt. The Russian Ballet reintroduced colored makeups in Paris, which soon became all the rage. And Sandra Bernhardt was so popular that women, first in Europe and then the United States, wanted to emulate her look. Soon, as film and stage stars became more popular, cosmetics were in again. In 1909, Max Factor, a Polish immigrant whose real name was Maximilian Factorwitz, opened a professional makeup studio meant for actors in Los Angeles. But it wasn't long before the general public was coming in to buy up eyeshadow and eyebrow pencils for themselves. And then, in the 1920s and 30s, incredible new products began to hit the markets of France and the rest of Europe. Based on a new discovery made in the final years of the previous century, these cosmetics promised to bring a whole new wave of beauty to the women of the world. One company, Radior, came out with a whole line of cosmetics in France starting about 1917 that included night cream, rouge, compact powder, vanishing cream, talcum powder, hair tonics, skin soap, face powder in six tints, and assorted pads that could be strapped to the face. One of their ads went as follows. See if you can spot the problem. An ever-flowing fountain of youth and beauty has at last been found in the energy rays of radium. When scientists discovered radium, they hardly dreamed they had unearthed a revolutionary beauty secret. They know it now. Radium rays vitalize and energize all living tissue. This energy has been turned into beauty's aid. Each and every radier toilette requisite contains a definite quantity of actual radium. Yes, you heard that right. Cosmetics containing radium became all the rage in France. After all, that's where the Curies discovered radium. Why shouldn't it hit big? Radium was the latest and greatest cosmetic ingredient, and by the 1920s had spread into Europe, and particularly the UK, where multiple stores sold Radior cosmetics in every branch. Radio or chin straps are guaranteed to contain radioactive substance and radium bromide. If placed on the face where the skin has become wrinkled or tired, the radioactive forces immediately take effect on the nerves and tissues. A continuous steady current of energy flows into the skin, and before long, the wrinkles have disappeared, the nerves have become strong and energized, and the tired muscles have become braced up and ready for service. Of course, competing cosmetic companies tried to outdo each other, then just as now. In 1933, Tho Radia came along and upped the ante in France by combining thorium chloride with radium bromide and putting out a line of cosmetics that included skin cream, powder, rouge, lipstick, and toothpaste. Brush that radium right in there, folks. What harm could it do? Still, something must have been wrong. Someone seemed to be noticing that radium might not be the best thing for you because the same year Tho Radia came along in France... So did Artez in Britain. Their write-up in the 1933 Hairdresser and Beauty Trade magazine made it clear that radium's jig was up. The use of radium itself would, of course, be impossible on account of the tremendous cost and harmful effects on the skin. Radon, however, which is the gas obtained from radium, impregnated into the cream, is the constituent which gives the cream its value be no danger of ill effects through accumulation because radon is completely eliminated from the skin within a period of six hours. We understand that this form of treatment has the approval of the medical and scientific authorities both in England and on the continent. Not much better. Fortunately, as the century progressed, things improved, and cosmetics in general became safer and less likely to, if not kill you, At least not permanently disfigure you with one of the many poisons formerly in use. Probably. And, like we said at the start, there's nothing wrong with wanting to present the best version of yourself to the world. We're all for it. You just have to be careful how you do it. Like, really careful. Just for fun. Why not go look up all the ingredients in your cosmetics? Thanks for stopping in to listen to this week's episode of GM Word of the Week. We're happy to see you. Our YouTube channel is humming right along, and the first 20 or so episodes of the show are in place. It's a fun trip down memory lane for some folks. Why not head over and subscribe to it? Link in this episode's description. Of course, we don't have to rely on the YouTube algorithm. Nope, we're supported by our listeners on Patreon instead, which makes the whole thing so much easier. You can join them and get transcripts, monthly chats, and even special bonus episodes if you so desire. Head over to gmwordoftheweek.com slash support to see what options best fit your needs. Join the fun, support the show, and keep the episodes coming. This episode was helpfully informed by the book The Royal Art of Poison. Filthy Palaces, Fatal Cosmetics, Deadly Medicine, and Murder Most Foul by Eleanor Herman. And if that doesn't sound like a title you'll hear again on this show, let me welcome you to your first time listening. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey, whose rosy cheek glow is not produced by the effects of radiation or heavy metal poisoning. Music comes to us from Blue Dot Sessions. There is no cosmetic for beauty like happiness.